0: Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhassa. Namah Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhassa. Namah Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhassa. Putang, Damang, Sankang, Namasami. So here we are. Another hot day and another hot evening. Two more to go, we're told, and then things will maybe shift a bit. So But tonight is the opposite night. It's the full moon of August. Uh, We're roughly one-third of the way through the Vasa. Not yet halfway through. But uh, time is flying by. We soon will be. And um, as you've probably noticed, uh, a number of monks and nuns are on self-retreat. Quite a few people are in retreat on their own in their own kutis or whatever the rest of us are still in the group situation but sooner or later those places will rotate and we'll all have a chance for self-retreat so what seems to be most in the air for us at the moment is news of death so I'll just recap for you what we've been hearing about so um, Not so many weeks ago, we had the death of a lady called Noi Thompson, who was for a long time a great supporter of the Sangha. Um, She was actually of royal blood in Thailand. Uh, I first met her on my first retreat with Longpo Semedo. This was way, way, a long time ago in, in Beptum near Chithurst. And in fact, she was quite well known at that time for her support. That the support that she offered to Thai students in Britain, Thai students who weren't familiar with the country and needed a bit of support. But she also had a lot to do with the monasteries, well, I can't tell you exactly what. So, Noi and her, her ash scattering will take place on the 24th of this month. And then we have June Chiverton, most recently, she is the mother of Ajahn Jayasaro. Uh, who has come over every year to come and see his mother. A big, very big name in terms of teacher in Thailand. And so I would expect some kind of funeral arrangements, perhaps, around that at some point. Then we have Ajahn Concret's cousin, who's passed away, whose name I can't remember. And finally, we have George Sharp, who I think passed away last Sunday, and uh, in terms of this Sangha, George, George's name is the biggest name or the most impact on, on us as a Sangha because of the crucial role he had in setting up the monasteries in the UK, particularly uh, Chithurst and, and Amravati. So I thought I'd start by just saying a little bit about what George did, in case some of you are not familiar with it and why, why his particular role was so important. <clears throat> so, um, George apparently saw an advert for meditation when he was on the tube one day. He was a rather depressed character. He'd been depressed for 10 years or more. And he followed this up. He phoned, he looked in the phone book and so on, and he finally came across this monk called or ex-monk called Capilovado, at the Hampstead Vihara. And he met him, and then he later he came for a meeting, and this man gave a talk. And uh, George was just ripe to hear that talk. It made a fantastic impression on him, completely turned his perception of reality around, and he became almost obsessive about discovering more about Buddha Dhamma. And... He became, you know, absolutely single-minded. So he became involved with the English Sangha Trust. First of all, he was secretary, and later he was chairman. And uh, just to mention on that, that the English Sangha Trust had been founded back in 1956 with the aim of setting up a sangha in the UK, in Britain, sorry, in England. And it has signally failed to do that. Uh, It had tried. It had brought back monks from Asia or asked British British people who were monks to serve in the capacity as the teacher. And time after time, the whole thing had failed, partly because these people were on their own, perhaps in a little flat somewhere, no support. Uh, they had some kind of material support, but very little other support. And things had gone wrong, and some of them had disrobed, and so on. So all of this had happened. And the people in charge of the English Sangha Trust have sort of given up on the idea that a Sangha could actually you know, be set up in, in England. And they'd instead turned their attention towards as they spreading the Dhamma in, in England. And it's very hard now to understand this with all the monasteries that we have, with the support that we've had, the money that's flowed in, the people that have shown an interest. It's very hard to understand quite the mentality of that period, Uh, the belief was that no sangha uh, could exist in the way that it did in Asia in the West. That was the belief. It wasn't possible. So anyway, we come to 1977. Lpur's Tomatoto was passing through the U.K. on his way back to Thailand, and he phones up, and he's allowed to come and stay in the Hampstead Vihara, this building that, that the Sangha Trust had. So George you know um, made sure he had um, someone to cook him meals and look after him, and then the two, two of them meet. And there was this very momentous meeting. And they seem to understand each other. They seem to have a very similar vision. So George is not asking for a teacher. He's not going to go down that road anymore. He's saying, what we want to do is set up a Sangha in England and properly support it. And that's something that Ajahn Samedha can relate to. So Ajahn Samedha then invites George, why don't you come and visit, visit our monastery in Thailand, see what it's like, see what's going on there, so you know what's actually, what you're actually sort of getting involved with. So that's exactly what George did. And this was a time when not many people would go to the northeast of Thailand, um, particularly to these rather rough areas um, you know, with monasteries that weren't particularly comfortable to be in. But George was prepared to rough it. and uh, Even though he was given a not terribly comfortable kuti and he was given a chip to bowl to eat his meal in and so on, he he's kind of settled into Wat Bapong where Ajan lived and uh, you know, he was observed by Ajahn Chah, who who felt, well, this this man is not asking for special favours, you know, he's actually genuinely interested. And of course, uh, George also visited Ajahn Mahabua in Wat Bantat. So he, I think this is one crucial difference between himself and other people in the UK at the time. He had actually seen, been to a monastery, observed the Sangha at work. He, He saw that, oh, monks do work and they can get things going and they, they run the monasteries and you know, once you set up the institution properly they can do it rather than having to be dependent on lay people all the time apart from the food and the, and the basic uh, you know, facilities so that made a big impression on him and then uh, following all these meetings Agin Chah agreed to bring some monks over and they came over to Hampstead and in the end he left four monks in Hampstead and then these monks, uh, well, it wasn't very comfortable. It was rather a small, crowded uh, accommodation. Um, it, a horrible situation on a very busy road in London with a pub on the other side of the road and lots of noise and so on and so forth. But every day, following Ajahn Chah's instruction, they would walk up the road uh, with their arms bowls, still go on binderbart, And even though no one gave them any food, they continued to do it, and then they'd walk on to Hampstead Heath. Uh, for recreation this rather nice area green area near where they lived and it was during one of these walks that they were passed by a jogger so many of you will know this story but this jogger ran back and he said what are you and they said we're forest monks so this made a very big impression on him on the jogger who said well actually i've got a forest and i'm worried about it and i want people to i want someone to take care of it so that was the beginning of the relationship that led to the signing over of Hammerwood uh, near Chithurst Monastery. So that was the situation. And George, with the single-minded application he had, and basically what, what had happened was that the teacher he had related to, the ex-monk Adu, he had met him, and then three months later, this man had died. And when he died... Uh, it made a very deep impression on George, and he kind of made a vow to himself. He said, OK, I've lost my teacher, but I will try to complete the work that he started, this work of bringing the Sangha to, to England. So he was very, very fired up, and he, he went down and he examined the, this hammerwood, this forest, and even got to meet some local people there. And they said, well, actually, because he, he was inquiring, is there any property where, in which monks could live? And they said, well, actually, there is this house and a uh, uh, Mr. Hadley, and he's not actually got it on the market, but he's wanting to sell it. We know that. So George phones up Mr. Hadley. They arrange to meet the following day. He drives down all the way to, to Chithurst. And you have another extraordinary meeting because this place, Chithurst, was a complete, almost a ruin. It had a very eccentric family living there. They invite George in through the hall as far as the reception room, and as he goes through the hall, each side of him, there are massive towering piles of old newspapers and magazines going back 30 years. There's just enough room to go through them, and then he goes into the reception room where they put a fire, and he's made it welcome. But the, the man says it very clearly, he says, well, we're not going to show you any other room." You can take it from me if you want to buy this place. This house is derelict. So afterwards, the, George and this man, Mr. Hadley, they go for a walk in the grounds. It's pouring with rain, they're holding umbrellas. And he sees all these massive, uh, towering clumps of nettles, as high as a man, everywhere. Not, they've not been cut for, for years and then also the wrecks of 30 different vehicles in this property. So a very eccentric family. And at the end of this tour, as he comes round to the front again, um, it's sort of time to to come to some kind of a conclusion. So he, he sort of turns to Mr. Hadley. He says, right, well, Mr. Hadley again makes it clear, you can't see any other room. How much do you want for this? So Mr. Hadley says, £120,000. Which sounds ridiculous to us in this day and age. £120,000 <laughs> is nothing. But in those days, it must have been worth a great deal. So George does lightning calculations, and he realises he can sell Hampstead Vihara for roughly £120,000. And he puts out his hand to Hadley, he says, sold. Just like that. So he had the, the grit and the decisiveness to make these decisions, uh, you know, basically taking a huge leap in the dark. And many people were to criticize him. They said, well, who's going to feed monks in West Sussex? Somebody said to Lung Poor Samedo, you've got, by buying this house, you've, you've got an albatross around your neck. And some people even sent news to Thailand, to Ajahn Chah, This man, George Sharp, is mad. Don't trust him. But anyway, the house was bought. It was agreed. Ten days later, they meet in a lawyer's office in Petersfield. And Mr. Hadley says, Oh, I'm so glad these ten days are over, George. I've had a terrible time. I've had so many people coming to me with offers to buy the house, all offering me more than you did. George says, Well, why didn't you accept their offers? Mr. Hurley says, well, we shook hands on it, didn't we? So I knew that was the beginning of Chithurst Monastery. And the house, as I said, well, as you all know, was in a terrible condition. The the roof was leaking. Just everything was in a terrible, terrible condition. I remember the first time I visited Chithurst, there was scaffolding all around the house, uh, and people were working on the roof when they could afford contractors they would have them in but otherwise monks were working monks i think monks were working on the roof but like uh, george had thought the whole you know the, the spirit that the sangha brought and of course the apostolator brought to the place attracted huge interest and also tremendous generosity so somebody donated a marquee so that they could have somewhere to cook the food in. And someone else donated, I don't know, thousands of tiles, new tiles. He, he asked them, how many tiles do you need? They made an estimate, and within a few days, all these tiles had turned up. So incredible uh, interest and generosity was being shown by people. And of course, Longpo Semedo was at his height in terms of his teaching and energy. He was going up and down the country teaching and uh, more and more people were coming. Either they were helping with the work at Chithurst or they were coming to hear teachings or whatever. So, more and more people were coming. And so, that the first crucial moment was when George bought Chithurst. But there was another one. And that was after two or three years, Lungpo Semedo says to him, We need another place. There were so many people coming to Chithurst. Uh, walking up and down, you know, the the stairs. You could hardly move, apparently. Uh, This was at the weekend. And so Lung Paul was extremely worried that these junior monks weren't being trained properly in this atmosphere. But he was also aware that the society around, you know, in Britain, was obviously, there was a, a great need for this teaching or for these kinds of places. So they resolved, or he resolved, to try and get a larger place with more accommodation and it had to be somewhere north of London because London was the big blockage for people coming down to to Sussex. So that's when this couple, Barbara and Peter, who lived in Bedford, uh, made inquiries of Bedfordshire County Council and have you got any big properties and there was this school, St Margaret's School that we're sitting in now and they came over to have a look and they thought, well, this might do, you know, lots of buildings. It might be very dilapidated. It was very run down. For seven years, there had been no, no children here, just a caretaker. And then they invited Lung Por and George to come and view the place. And apparently Lung Por had had a dream at some point. And when you came in through the main gate in those days, there was an incredible avenue of trees, Uh, with blossoms on it looked incredibly beautiful and uh, all those trees by the way died at some point but anyway when you came in it looked very lovely and uh, as they turned into the property or after he'd walked around a bit he said yes this is it so then you come to the nitty-gritty of actually buying a place now remember they'd had money from the sale of Hampstead Vihara which helped them to buy Chithurst. But now they had to find money with a mortgage. And so they approached Bedfordshire County Council and apparently they phoned them up and someone said, oh, we've been waiting for your call for seven years. So a price was agreed. It seemed that everything was in order. The Sangha was informed. The plans were made for the Sangha to move up here. Everything was on course and then suddenly they get a call. And Bedfordshire County Council say, oh, no, we can't offer it to you for this price. It's got to be a higher price. Because there had been a change on the council. It was a political change. So um, there was a new, you know, a higher price offered. So this was obviously a crisis. Now, people were preparing to move to Amravati. The whole expectation was that Amravati, or St. Margaret's, would be owned by the Sangha or by the English Sangha Trust. So, again, a very crucial moment, and it was George who decided to pick up the phone to the chief executive of Bedfordshire County Council. And apparently when he got through, the man said, I know who you are and I know what you want, and I can't make a deal. Something like this. So George said, yes, you can. If you're the chief executive, you can make a deal. So the man said, well, actually, no, I can't because it's political. It's a political problem here. But if you get on to this certain person, the chairman of another committee, maybe he will be prepared to talk to you. So that's what George did. He phoned up this chairman of another committee. And um, he said to him, right, well, you want, to, uh, you, know, you want this extra money? Well, you can have, we, we're prepared to offer the original sum plus 10%, not a penny more. Not a penny more. And uh, so the man contemplated a moment or two and then he said, okay, that should, be, that should do it. I accept your offer. So again, just through the, you know, the application, the grit, the dynamism that he showed, he secured the, that deal. And at that moment, Amravati Buddhist Monastery was born. So that's why <coughs> we'll be remembering George. I'm sure there'll be a big, massive funeral here. Now, if we contemplate the results of uh, what he did, he and Lung Poor, of course, together, Luang providing the spiritual aspect and the inspiration, George doing these nitty-gritty deals, if we look at the results that flowed from uh, what they did, First of all, thousands of people have passed through both monasteries, both Chithurst and here. And they have both meant a great deal to people. I think for some people you could say not just discovering meditation and hearing the teachings, but also witnessing a different kind of lifestyle has meant a huge deal to people. And for some people their lives have been turned around. Maybe they were very miserable, depressed before, but having had contact with these monasteries, their lives were turned around. So that's one aspect. And then the other aspect to remember is that there had been no monasteries set up in the West, not successfully, not not on the Thai model, but this was the first, or Chittos was the first, and then shortly afterwards, Amravati. But now we have monasteries around the world in the West, not just in Europe, but first of all, because people started coming to Lungpur Por Sumater, once these monasteries were established and saying, could we have one in our country? First of all, Switzerland and Italy. Um, then in, uh, I think it was New Zealand. There was one set up in Australia, an Ajun Monastery. Finally, there were two in New Zealand, two or three in Australia. Then there was a Bayagiri in the States and now Temple as well, and three Smaller monasteries in Canada. And then we also have one in Norway, we have one in Portugal, and another monastery was set up in Germany, Mutadaya. So, you know, it was through the setting up of Chithurst that people realized oh, it can be done, it can work. So that's quite a legacy. So I should say that I shouldn't really be here tonight. It was um, my expectation to spend a vasa in Hungary. Uh, Before the years of COVID, I was going to Hungary on a fairly regular basis to spend a vasa there. And in a rather uh, simple or primitive meditation center not far from Budapest. And we would run some retreats and do some teaching and also there is a, a Buddhist college in, in, in Budapest. And so the plan was this year to resume that kind of visit and to go, in fact, to the south of the country. And uh, so the tickets were bought. I, wasn't, I don't fly, I don't go by, by air, but air ticket, uh, Sorry, tra- train tickets were bought. And I did actually manage to get to St Pancras on time. And I found an incredible crowd scene at St Pancras. This was at the time when the airports were in chaos because so many flights were being cancelled. So I think a lot of people were transferring to railways. Anyway, it was absolute chaos, it seemed to me, at St Pancras. And a massive queue, you had to sort of queue like in a snake formation, winding your way through barriers up towards the front. And this went on for three quarters of an hour... And some people couldn't stand it. They ran out from under the barriers or they left their luggage there. But anyway, if you kept going, you finally got to the front and then you put your ticket on the glass reader and then they let you, finally you were in and you went through the baggage check, the body check, the COVID check, finally the passport check and then they allow you into the waiting area. And the waiting area for the Eurostar, which is what I was getting onto it's never sufficient, there aren't enough seats, so many people sit on the floor, and some people stand around in groups. So anyway, I was actually in the waiting area, so I thought, well, this is it, I'm, you know, I'm, on, my, I'm on my way. And then we heard that my particular train was arriving late. Okay, well, I thought it might be too late. And then finally it did come, and we were put on, taken on board, and we left about 50 minutes late. But we left. And then about an hour out into the countryside, in this country, the train ground to a halt. And we were told that there was a trouble, problem in the cab and the drivers were trying to fix the, the problem. And meanwhile, they had to switch off the electricity because it, they had to conserve the batteries. So this was a very hot day. So all the elect- so the air conditioning went off and no announcements could be made. So we... St- Gradually in the carriages, the heat began to rise and uh, ladies were using fans to keep themselves uh, cool. And then the train manager was walking from carriage to carriage shouting out announcements. But after an hour or more, uh, I heard a passenger come past me and he's saying, they're going to tow us back to London. So that's what happened. An engine came out linked up to the back of the train and pulled us back into St. Pancras. A most ignominious trip. When you're heading for Budapest, you end up back in St. Pancras. And another crowd scene. A thousand people come off that train and there are only two immigration officials to let us back into Britain. However... Anyway, I'd missed my connections, I could feel the connections going as I sat in that train and then, of course, there wouldn't be time to enter the Vasa in Hungary, so I entered the Vasa here, so that's why I'm here tonight. However, only six days later, I had an email from my sister to tell me that the doctor was saying that my mother's dying process had started. So that was interesting. I'd written around to people in emails, oh, some hidden hand kept me in the UK. And now I started to find out why. If I had gone to Hungary, I don't think I'd have been very happy. I wouldn't have had a chance to say goodbye. So anyway, I spent about two days um, down in South London. I I went to her care home. And uh, each day spent about four to five hours there. First of all, I was shocked by the sight of her, because her face had shrunk uh, quite a bit. She found it difficult to keep her denture in; it was very uncomfortable for her. So every now and then, she'd take the denture out. Um, she she couldn't communicate so easily. And, you know, she could make words, but her sentence would tail off before it came to an end so you couldn't really understand quite what she was trying to say but there was communication through eye contact through touch and through the occasional word and she knew what was going on she was definitely there, she wasn't in some strange world and so I was able to help to offer her food and drink, she can eat soft foods and drink fluids and you have to give her the fluid through a beaker, she can't drink from a cup and although she can't lift up the beaker herself she can actually help to guide guide the beaker when you're holding it and then so you you realise she wants some more or she doesn't want any more and so on so you've got that kind of communication and as I say she's definitely present so on the second day when she was a bit more awake and alert I was able to say to her properly well I've come to say goodbye to you um, you know, assuring her of my affection and uh trying to reassure her that she would be going to a good place she 's done so many good things in her life, so as I say, at the be- as I said at the beginning, death is in the air now, my mother, as far as I know, she hasn't died yet she 's quite a fighter she 's hanging on. I thought I'd just say a bit about how she viewed my becoming a monk. This might have some, be of some interest to other Salmoners and also to perhaps anyone else who's contemplating uh, entering the Sangha. So she never could understand it. Um, it was totally contrary to what she thought I should be doing. Her, her vision for me was to settle down, get married, have two children, live in the suburbs, and commute to London. So it was a rather shock, a shock when I started attending Chidhurst Monastery, and became an Anagarika. I'm sure it was not wasn't just shaving the head, shaving the eyebrows. That's what really rocked them. However, she of of all the family members, she was perhaps the most open, and she did come to Chidhurst. She did come to Amravati, and gradually over the years, her her attitude did soften I think she was stuck with a prejudice and the prejudice stemmed from the time that she when she grew up in a village in Sussex and some lady there had become a nun and then sort of hadn't been very happy as a nun something like this so she was stuck with this prejudice and her vision or her her perspective was that nuns were dare I say it failures in the marriage market that was her vision um, but gradually over the years she had contact with nuns here and it made quite an impression on her and it really opened her eyes they're not failures in the marriage market she was quite impressed by some of the nuns and influenced by them both here and down at Chithost whether she actually ever forgave the sangha, the male sangha I don't know, I think she thought the male sangha had taken her son away from her but um she was impressed with Longpo Samedo. She heard his teachings. She even came into his kuti one day and we had a sort of three 3 tripartite conversation. So, yeah. It's definitely she, she softened. And I think the one thing is that at a certain stage of their lives, parents want you to do this. This is the way you're going to be happy. But after a certain stage, after a certain age, they think, well, it doesn't matter if he does this or that so long as he's happy. That's... That's the attitude. So I have to, to say that my family always fed me as a monk. Um, they've always offered me food. They never required that I give up the robe in order to come home, which I think is what happened to some monks. Uh, they were told that by their families. And finally, of course, both my parents did give permission for me to ordain, and I was grateful for that. So I'm, I am overall very grateful to my family even if they don't understand what I've done or really uh sympathize with it, I'm still grateful to them. So anyway, one the the, the theme I thought I would try and address tonight is that of uh Death, separation, and the loss of loved ones. This seems to be the theme uppermost for me at the moment. So first of all, in the UK, there is a taboo around death. Um, If you're at a dinner party or having supper with your friends or family, you don't talk about death. If you did, they would think it would be very unmannerly or distasteful, tasteless, insensitive, and possibly even an attack upon themselves if you were to talk about death. Um, We don't like to use the word die very often. So people find euphemisms. So they might say something like this, when i drop off the twig when i pop my clogs or about somebody else when he croaks it so for my father he couldn't he didn't want to acknowledge death at all and as he was getting older i said to my mother shall I talk to him about death, you know, being a monk, you know, you may be, something you should do. And she said, oh no, no, don't, you terrify him. So the only thing that he, he would, the only thing he did say that remotely acknowledged that he might die was this, we don't know what's going to happen next. That's what he could say. So by contrast, there was a prisoner. I used to go to the Mount Prison, which is a local prison, with uh, Colin, who was a Buddhist chaplain there. And uh, we used to meet the prisoners and sit and meditate and so forth. And one of them was a guy called Keith, and he was a kind of cockley type from London. So we used to call him Keith, and Keith used to speak like that. So sometimes Keith would say, yeah, I, I imagine myself lying on the slab... Meaning in the morgue, I thought that's pretty good. Most of us wouldn't say that. So, um, <clears throat> so most of the time we don't kind of take much, pay much attention to death. It's going on all around us. Um, it's as hidden as possible in this country. Uh, we don't usually have the coffin open, the casket open. Um, We have curtains that obscure. the. the, 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 When when they push the button, the casket goes in, the curtains close, and um, we don't have to think about it too much. That's the way at least my family like to operate. Um. But we do notice when it's someone that we care about someone who's had an impact on us, someone who's, you know, played a role in our lives, then we, we really do have to notice death then. And yet all around us, people are dying all the time. It's just a part of life, isn't it? More Now there is a, a, a quote from a from a man who was a poet in the 17th century. His name was John Donne. He wasn't just a poet. He was also a, um, a cleric or a divine. He ended up as the dean of St. Paul's, apparently. Although apparently he didn't want to be dean of St. Paul's, but he was forced to be. Anyway, he came up with this. He wrote several meditations and devotions, and this became a kind of classic. So I thought I'd quote this one. It says, It goes like this. No man is an island entire of itself. (coughs) Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. As well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manor of your friends were or of your own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. And then the most famous line was, and therefore, send not to ask for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Send not to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. There's something very dummick in this quote, I think. He's pointing to the fact that we're all in this realm of samsara. It's a death-bound realm. And we're all connected. Death is ubiquitous. Now at the same time, of course, we... most people don't want to know about it. So we have this famous joke from Woody Allen. You may have come across it. He says something like this. I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. But a quote from Lungpur Chao goes something like this: "Death is the most important thing. There's nothing more important than death." We have the Buddhist similes for the shortness of life. Some of you may know them, so the, I'll remember a few of them, but the, one is this: a dewdrop on a blade of grass. When the sun comes up, how long does it last? Or a man with a stick draws a line in the water. How long does the line last? Or a gob of spit on somebody's tongue before they spit it out. How long does it hang there? Or a bubble on a stream. Coming down the stream, the bubble bursts. Or a mountain torrent coming down the side of a mountain it never stops or if you have a piece of meat and you put it on a heated iron plate the meat immediately breaks apart or when a cow is coming to be slaughtered and it stumbles forward in the shambles how long does that last so all these are similes for how long life lasts now, against that, we have the more worldly view, which is, well, there's plenty of time. Let's, uh, let's make the most of it uh, with the sensual pleasures. So we have various phrases in English, such as, uh, eat, drink, and be merry. Wine, woman, and song. Roll out the barrel. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. But for Ajahn Chah, his take on it is that basically birth and death are two sides of the same coin. So he says more or less, as soon as you're born, you're dead. He compares it to roots and branches. Where there's a branch, there's a root. Where there's a root, there's a branch, intimately connected. And this is birth and death. And then he sort of asks, well, why is it we're so enamored of birth, that whenever there's a new baby, or generally when there's a new baby, there's all this celebration, and we crack open a bottle of champagne to wet the baby's head, we send out baby pictures, there's a lot of happiness and joy, and yet when there's a, a funeral, people are very miserable or quiet or weeping, or sometimes wailing, so much lamentation and grief He says, you might as well have lamentation and grief when someone is born. (laughs) And basically life, as we know, can change very quickly. Uh, Lung Por Cha's teaching is on uncertainty. My nair, uncertain, not for sure. So that my rail trip to Hungary was definitely not for Sure. And we can also think about uh, what's going on here now in this monastery, Uh, the plans for demolition and rebuilding. So I don't know if any of you remember this, but um, we started clearing out the sala and other buildings in April, and the demolition was scheduled for the 1st of May. But that didn't happen. So then it was rescheduled for the 15th of June. And well, that didn't happen. Then it was rescheduled for the fifteenth of July. That didn't happen. Then it was rescheduled for the fifteenth of August. And that's not happening. And now it's rescheduled for the twenty-ninth of August. That's pretty minor, <laughs> uncertain, isn't it? So we can be floating along on a you know, in a in a boat on a stream. It's nice and placid and calm. Maybe we have nice views each side of us. And then suddenly we, we're into the rocks, we're into the rapids, there's white water, and maybe there's torrents and waterfalls and so forth. So life can change very quickly and suddenly everything's coming at us when we perhaps least expect it to do so. So now I come to some different difficult aspects of the Buddha's teaching. Which I'll just uh, try to talk about because I think for some people, particularly if they're new to the teaching, they will find these hard to relate to, or hard to understand, hard to take on board. So I'll, I'll try a quote for you From affection springs grief, from affection springs fear. For him who is wholly free from affection, there is no grief, much less fear. So think about that one. Now there is a sutta that deals with this issue. It's called the Pyajatica Sutta, born from those who are dear. And in that sutta, there is a householder. And the householder has a beautiful little son. But suddenly the sun dies. So this man becomes completely distracted. He can't. He doesn't want to eat. He doesn't want to work. He goes to the charnel ground, holding out his arms, "My beloved only son, where are you? My beloved only son, where are you?" So then people say, "Why don't you go and talk to this teacher, the Buddha?" You know he's in the town on on the other side of the town. So why don't you go and see him? So this householder comes to see the Buddha. And as soon as he sees him, the Buddha says, "Householder, your faculties are not normal. They are not faculties of one who is in control of his mind. Your faculties are deranged." And the householder says, "Well, how could I not be deranged?" I've lost my only beloved son. I don't want to eat. I don't want to work. All I can do is go to the charnel ground and say, where are you, my beloved son? And so the Buddha says, his response is this. So it is, householder. So it is. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are born from those who are dear arise from those who are dear and then the householder says what do you mean venerable sir joy and happiness are born from those who are dear arise from those who are dear i don't agree with what you're saying at all so he gets up and leaves he stomps away and he comes across some a group of men who are playing with dice some gamblers and he says do you know what that recluse said to me he said this and i said that to him and And then the gamblers say, yes, you're right. Joy and happiness are born from those who are dear, arise from those who are dear. So this householder says, yes, I agree with the gamblers. But this whole exchange uh, uh, becomes news and it goes back to the palace. So King Pasenadi is in the palace and he hears hears this, did the Buddha say that? Did he really say that? And then he, he asked the queen, Queen Malika, did he say that? And she says, well, if the Buddha said it, it must be true. So the king says, well, you, whatever that man says, you seem to believe in. So she decides to check it out. She sends a Brahmin to question the Buddha. Did he actually use those words? Did he say that? So the, the Brahmin goes and has a conversation with the Buddha. And he says, did, did you actually say this, Venerable Sir? And the Buddha says, yes, I did. Yes, I did. I said uh, that uh, pain, grief, sorrow, lamentation, despair are born from one who is dear, arise from one who is dear. And then he cites a whole series of examples of people who've lost a child or a mother or a father or a wife or a husband or someone else that they, they love very much and they've become distracted and they've walked through the streets crying from crossroad to crossroad. And he also gives the example of a couple. So this couple, a a recently married couple, and they're a happy couple. And the wife uh, hears that the husband's relatives don't like her. And in fact, they're planning to get them divorced and then to marry her off to somebody else she can't stand. So she goes to her husband and says, uh, this is what your relatives are planning to do, and they want to give me to a man I can't stand to be with. So the husband decides, well, on the spot, to cut her in half and to disembowel himself with the idea that they will be together again in heaven. So as the Buddha said, sorrow, grief, pain, lamentation, and despair are born from those who are dear, arise from those who are dear. Now, this might seem a little far-fetched, but I can recount something from my own family. Before he died, I had an uncle. His name was Jeff. He lived in Australia. He had three different marriages, and the second marriage was particularly unhappy. This lady and he would come together and create a child... Then they would have terrible rows and separate, come together, create a child, have terrible rows and separate, come together and create a child, etc. They had four children three girls and one boy. And the boy's name was Peter. Now, the relationship between the two parents was so poor that she would never allow him in, my uncle, in the house. But she did allow him to bring Christmas presents. On Christmas time, he could come to the front door and give presents to the children. So he didn't know his children, but he didn't see them very often. And then as time went on, Peter developed a heart complaint. There was something wrong with his heart. So he was supposed to be going to the hospital every year or on a regular basis. His mother would take him there. And then she says to him, "You, know, Will you do you want to go to the hospital? He said, no, I don't like going there. So she, also said, she said to him, oh, you don't have to go then. Within a year or two, the heart complaint Blew up, and then he was dead. So, of course, there was a lot of blame going on. Guilt, blame, rocketing around this family. And then my uncle was driving through Sydney, and he was seeing all people going around there, you know, going shopping, going to work, doing this and doing that, and he was saying to himself, how can they go about their business like this? don't they know that my son has died don't they know that my son has died now someone hearing what the Buddha said in relation to the story I told you I guess might start to think well what kind of a heartless callous cold teacher is this are we supposed not to care for people are we supposed not to have any affection for people? Isn't this what binds us all together? But if we look at other aspects of the Buddha's teachings, we'll see, for example, the Mangala Sutta. That's the Sutta on the Highest Blessings. And he teaches us the highest, among the highest blessings are providing for mother and father's support, cherishing family, offering help to relatives and kin, ways of work that harm no being. And in the Karaniya Matakusalena, he says something like this, uh, let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Just as a mother protects with her life her child, so one should cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, free from hatred and ill will. So this doesn't sound like a cold and callous teacher to me. So what is he pointing to when he offered those teachings? And I think he points to two things. First of all, cause and effect. When we experience tremendous grief or sorrow, it's because of a cause. And he's pointing towards attachment. So it's when... When there's a lot riding on a relationship, when um, I depend on someone or I rely on them to be there for me, when my needs are paramount in my, you know, from my point of view, this is what we call attachment. And attachment can you know, take the form of attachment to a person or certain people. It can take the the form of attachment. Some people with possessions, they're very, very attached to possessions. They're very important for them. Or some other people might be very attached to a position they hold or to a situation that they want to continue. Or it might be a case of one's own self-image you're attached to uh, an aspect of self-image. <clears throat> so when the story about what had happened between the Buddha and the householder got back to the palace, uh, and Queen Malika heard that this what it said was confirmed by the uh, by the Brahmin, she she goes to the king again and she says, um, "Your Majesty." supposing there was to be a change in princess so and so wouldn't and she change and alteration occurred or she was to die wouldn't you be unhappy said yes I would be very upset or supposing there was to be a change in this particular queen and she was to get sick or to die he said yes i would be very upset or in this particular general yes I'd be very upset or in me yes I'd be very upset and finally what about if there was change in Kasi and Kosala, in the places that you relate to and and rely on? He said, yes, I would be deeply upset. So at that point, he begins to understand the Buddha's teaching. So Ajahn Chah's take on this is, wherever the mind um, has the most attachment, that is where... You will experience the most intense grief, the most intense pain, and the most intense difficulty right there. Or another way of putting it is the most problems arise in the place where you have the most, you feel the most attraction, the most longing, the most concern. That's where the suffering arises. And his advice is this that when you suffer, that sense of loss, of bereavement or whatever, that that is the moment, uh, that is the time to turn towards that and to use it as an object of contemplation. And then to keep coming back to it in the present moment, to contemplate it and to become skilled at contemplating it. Because when you do become skilled, you will see that it is ordinary and it is natural it 's part of nature. So he says that where we experience suffering or when we experience suffering this is the this is the moment when wisdom can arise if we can if we are prepared to investigate, the problem being that most of us are not prepared to investigate we're not prepared to look into this this level of pain. So anyway, just to draw this to a close, um, we've considered how short life is, uh, the nature to some extent of birth and death that Lung Po draws attention to. So... um, I just remind you of the Buddha's injunction that there are caves, there are the roots of trees, there are empty huts. Um, Don't waste the opportunity. Make good use of it. It will be for your long-term benefit. So on that note, I would like to draw this to a close. I offer you these thoughts for your consideration. A1.